Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. In this episode, me and Matt Baker are joined once again by our good friend, Randy Dybel, a doctoral student in philosophy at the New School for Social Research, whose work focuses on phenomenology and ancient Greek philosophy. In today's episode, Randy introduces George Spencer Brown's Laws of Form, a work that is ostensibly a mathematical textbook, but as you'll see, has had a profound influence on cybernetics, philosophy, and the study of human consciousness, both within the academy, as well as within para-academic and psychedelic spaces. I hope that you enjoy this exploration of a profound and strange little text. Without further ado, Randy Dybel. You want to do an official? St- I feel like we don't do official starts. No, we usually we just kind of mumble our way into the beginning, and at some point we're just <laughs> like, "Well, here we are." <laughs> which which actually throws some people uh, off. They're like, "So, are did we start yet?" Right. And we're just like, "Yes, we did." <laughs> yeah. So we we brought you in today to talk about uh, George Spencer Brown's Laws of Form. Um, this sort of I don't even know really how to describe it. I mean, I think that's part of what the task will be today is trying to make sense of what exactly is this little weird book. Um, I spent the last month or so working my way through it, um, working through some some videos, and it's fascinating. It's uh, at points it's kind of mind blowing, but um, it's really uh, I, I don't know if I've ever encountered a text that's quite so hard to pin down. So it's hard. It's hard to classify for sure. Yeah, so I'm pretty excited to to dig into this. And you are, uh, Randy, you are one of the the sort of premier thinkers of the laws of form. You've um, you've you've been published uh, talking about George Spencer Brown. Uh, you've helped organize conferences on um, on his thought, or pre- at least participated in the 50th anniversary uh, conference. That was a pretty big deal. Um, so I wonder if maybe to kick off, as we often do, we'd love to hear a little bit about how you got entangled in the world of George Spencer Brown and the laws of form. Yeah, cool. To introduce myself, I'm a, I'm a PhD student at the New School for Social Research in Manhattan. Um, I'm a lecturer in philosophy at St. Joseph's University here in my hometown out here in, in Long Island. Um, yeah, so so that's professionally like where I stand. Um, I work a lot with this Spencer Brown stuff. I also do phenomenology and um, work on interpreting laws of form in terms of, of these guys and, and girls especially um, this one woman, um, Hedvig Conrad Martius, an early student of Husserl. I um, originally, you know, even before when I was a kid, before I went into philosophy, I, um, you know, I was in this like this fascinating place in San Diego, lots of like hippies and and weird like new age type stuff, you know, just in the air at the beach, people were meditating and doing weird stuff, right? Um, free classes of yoga and, and, and meditation classes and stuff. And, um, you know, I got into some Terrence McKenna, some of that, like California philosophizing, you know, and, um, and then Terrence McKenna led me to some whitehead. Um, but another route was, um, John Lilly, John C. Lilly, the, um, the neuroscientist from the, who who like in the 1950s he did some neuroscience um innovation type stuff and then you know a little later um developed this program of the the human biocomputer like perspective or framework um 
where he talked about how everything is a sort of like program in your biocomputer. You know, it, it's it's at least like an interesting, um, you know, hermeneutical lens on these sorts of things. But so in this kind of context, uh, John Lilly invented the isolation tank, the float tank. Uh, what Lilly talks about in his books, which is that he used this mathematical text when he was in the isolation tank, you know, doing acid. Later on, he, he started doing a lot of ketamine to get really deep into that <laughs> dark tank hole. But then in 1969, this book Laws of Form came out and Lilly heard about it right away from um, Stuart Brand of the Whole Earth Catalog, an important like a print publication encyclopedic project that predates the internet and is, is a sort of precursor to the, the idea of the internet, you know. Stuart Brand reviewed Laws of Form in a, in a really spectacular sort of way, and this inspired Lily. Lily got into it, Lily started using it, and it became the mathematics of his um, supra self-metaprogramming stuff, you know, and, and this is what he was doing in the isolation tank, is he was using this as this uh this laws of form as a way of traveling or traversing spaces states you know in the tank in in his imagination you could say so um, would it be fair to say he's, he's he's trying to in a certain way use this mathematical text to reprogram his own mind to elicit different kinds of experiences yeah yeah to to do these transformations these transits as well as um you know to to reprogram as you put it right but um also what what laws of form really does it's really like cosmogonic you know cosmogenetic it's about the the coming into being of the universe from this ubiquitous omnipresent act of drawing what he calls the first distinction and this is kind of something really weird to wrap your head around when you when you hear about it and and I'll be interpreting it um in terms of ontology, uh, philosophical cosmology, metaphysics, metaphysical categories, classical metaphysical categories, um, how these might be transformed, what they might mean in like a, a meta-modern, you know, postmodern um, context that that brings in folks like Deleuze, I don't know, Gadamer, Ricoeur, um, Husserl, Heidegger, right? All of these ways that that we do philosophy today. Um, yeah, so so we'll we'll get that you know as we go, but. But so to continue the, the story, Lily was using laws of form in the isolation tank to, he said, like travel into other universes. I read his books and I heard about this and, and really like everything that Lily was describing struck me as like basically like normal science. Like it was far out. It was weird science for sure. But this one claim that the laws of form was something he was using to travel into other universes. To me, that was like the most bizarre thing. So I went straight there. You know, I got laws of form. I got really into it. I read all these other things related to it, you know, and 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 even before this is like when I was a teenager, before I went into school for philosophy, you know, I knew that this was a very powerful thing. I agreed with these little blurbs um, by people like Bertrand Russell, you know, um, who says on the back of the book that this is, you know, Spencer Brown has done this. This powerful thing. This um, he created a, a calculus of great power and simplicity. You you met Spencer Brown. So how did that come about? Yeah. So so I got all into this stuff. I got into Lily. I got into laws of form. I started um, being able to figure it out. And, I, and and probably I had the benefit of ignorance. You know, I wasn't already anything. I was a kid, right? I wasn't a mathematician. 
Um, I'm still not. I'm a philosopher, you know. So, so I, I had the benefit of ignorance, and I found Spencer Brown's phone number on the uh, the publisher's website. He asked them to do that and tells people to to call him up so he can form a um, a siblinghood of enlightened beings. I called him up and uh, we started chatting, and you know, he was not a disappointment. He's uh, totally totally far out. And he would tell me his stories about like, um, you know, embryonic reg regressions and that kind of stuff. So, so, you know, he did not disappoint. So, so we became friends. I'd, I'd call him up sort of out of the blue all the time. Cause I was just some kid, some, some, some California kid, you know, calling him up and he had fond memories of California. Um, he spent some time out there, had some adventures in, um, in the 1970s and, and he'd call me as well. He became like a family friend. He'd talk to my mom and and my my siblings, you know, and um, so so we we you know we became acquainted with the professor over the phone this way. Um, it wasn't until much later, after I like went into philosophy and everything, I had reason to come out to Europe, and then I I met him. Um, but this was in like the last few years of his life, and I came out and I saw him uh, twice before he passed away. And then after that, I came to the funeral, met some folks and yeah, we decided in 2019, we'd have the 50th anniversary of the publication of the 1969 laws of form. So we did that. We have a website and we have, um, everything is recorded. All the videos are up, um, on YouTube, on Vimeo, thanks to West Den Hague. Um, this, uh, this team of, they call themselves, um, pre-Deridean grammatologists. They're interested in um, notation and uh, recording. Um, so they're actually like philosopher artists. So anyway, we had, you know, a lot of really interesting, famous people, including um, Francis Jeffrey, who was the director of John Lilly's Phenomenology Experimental Research Center in the 1970s, who used to float with George Spencer Brown in the, the Big Sur area at these laboratories they had where they, they had float tanks. Thinking about the, you know, kind of the, the core of the text, at the center of laws of form is this fundamental distinction between the marked and the unmarked state. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, how do these these two um, ideas of marked and unmarked state function, uh, and, and how does he develop them throughout the course of the book? Yeah, so, you know, the, the, the book is actually pretty short. It's a mathematical text, so us readers of continental philosophy who are used to, to volumes can, can get into it um, quickly and easily. Uh, it begins with a chapter called The Form, and it has a definition of distinction and these two axioms, which govern um, you know, what this first distinction is and, uh, and what, what can be done at this most primitive level. And, and yet still here, there are, there are no symbols that are introduced. It's just a definition and two axioms. And, and we should probably um, actually do a little bit better job. I should, I should mention like what these are. There are these two fundamental axioms and what they mean. You know, doing it in a way where I, for a podcast, read off the diagrams. It's, it's, a, little, it's a little weird. It's, it's best to like see these images. Yeah, you know, he's, he's a very kind of like a spatial geometrical thinker. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to like open it too too much to the the optocentric, you know, um, visuocentric uh, critiques, 
you know, um, because it is more fundamental than that. But, you know, it, as a book and as a mathematical, you know, system of notation, maybe, maybe in there implicitly is a kind of um, a, a visual centric, you know, sort of bias. But the point, the intention is that, you know, th there's, there's the unmarked state. So like mind, like the moon, right. <laughs> or whatever, like th there's nothing there, like maybe a bright white, maybe a bright black, maybe, um, you know, the invisibility of, of a, of the center of a crystal ball, but, um, you know, void based, this is all void based. That's the significant, um, way of putting it. It's, it's void based mathematics, you know, and, and there's, that's a great term for it, you know, cause it, it's really about like, how can we deal with the void? You know, we have no hands. We can't quite grasp it up. You know, um, we have to stand somewhere. So we we distinguish the void from the void, and suddenly there is a we or a me or whatever. It's not even different yet because we're not even dealing with the one and the many yet. But in any case, you start with nothing, right? And then if your distinction is an ultra simple boundary between nothing and nothing. Maybe we'll use like a dot or a line or a circle, right? He uses a circle right away. He says, for example, a circle, you know, draws a distinction in, for example, a plane space, right? So, so already we're talking about some kind of two-dimensional thing. But the point, the intention is that we're not talking about a dimensional thing in the beginning. We want something in, in the geometric analogy, we want something so fundamental that it redefines what the point truly is, what lines are in relation to points, what planes are in relation to lines. You know, it really, it, it, it's part of a, a really esoteric tradition of, of like living geometry or um, like what, what Fichte calls the Ursprungliche Geometry. You know, this fundamental act, it doesn't appear. You know, you can't really see it. It's, it's too infinitesimally small um, so, so we, we, as thinkers and readers who are humans, we have to like have something there, like a dot, right. Or a line or a circle or something, um, you know, a, a kitty cat appears in, in your, your white void or whatever in your imagination, right. Um, whatever it is, we have to use something to indicate this thing, the first distinction, and then chapter two is called Forms Taken Out of the Form. And that's where we introduce the little symbol that he uses, this, um, this marked state operator. When we want to say that we're pointing at the inside of the distinction, it's easier to use the symbolic form Spencer Brown comes up with. And that is called a mark. It is a horizontal line from left to right, that then goes down for an equal distance on the right-hand side. It's sometimes called a cross because it invokes the act of crossing. He uses both terms in the work. If you want to indicate the outside of the distinction, the unmarked state, you use cross over cross, mark over mark. Now you have all you need to play in the sandbox. Let's begin. But um, in any case, you know, th there's this fundamental thing, the first distinction. And then the laws governing the indication of the distinction are the two first laws, and those are the two axioms, the laws of calling and the laws law of crossing. 
So calling and crossing, those are the first two axioms. Um, axiom one, the law of calling, the value of a call made again is the value of the call. That is to say, if a name is called and then another is called again, the value indicated by the two calls taken together is the value indicated by one of them. That is to say, for any name to recall is to call. Equally, if the content is of value, a motive or an intention or instruction to cross the boundary into the content can be taken to indicate this value. Okay, I feel like I'm losing my audience here. So you can call this thing into existence any number of times, you know, and it's still just the thing that you've called into existence. That's actually quite natural to us, right? Randy, Randy, you know, I'm I'm here, you know. Um it's almost like uh like the law of identity in in a certain sense. Yeah, yeah I think so. Um in the medium of the podcast, I'll, I'll skip to axiom two, the law of crossing. The value of a crossing made again is not the value of the crossing. So there's a difference here. With the law of crossing, if you do it an even number of times, then it cancels to there being nothing there. Yeah, you, you exit the circle and then you re-enter the circle. You've done it right. twice, so you end up back where you started. Right. So so like any um like so if something gets uh crossed and crossed again, then it, it cancels. There's, there's nothing there. Picture an equation sign. This is our, our other of two fundamental equations. We have an equal sign. And on one side of it, we have the little, little hat, the little marked state operator. And we have a second one inside of it, right? So there's two of them. And remember what we said they do, they cancel. So on the other side of the equation, there's nothing there. On the other side of the equal sign, there's simply no symbol at all. So those are the two laws. That's what they look like if I was able to paint this picture. You know, so so if you can picture that, um, then you can understand that some of the, the most basic things about just drawing a distinction. So so it sounds like super simple, right? Because it is. These are like so elementary. We overthink them, we have trouble understanding them, especially if we're trained mathematicians. <laughs> and and yet in in what like in in less than 60 pages right he builds this into a system where he has the logical equivalent of imaginary numbers right it's really quite remarkable how how uh complex he's able to take the single motion of of crossing a distinction becomes you know functionally all of math <laughs> yeah and then we build all these conventions rules you know and and soon you get these two axioms transformed in to such a way or your mind is transformed in such a way that you can read these axioms as the laws governing um, possible constants and this is called the primary arithmetic and so these primary constants are the the primitive expressions and these you could call them the forms right and then the next couple chapters involve the the uh you know, you, you, again, you change your perspective on it and these constants, you start playing with them as variables. And so now you have primitive variables and, and there's still no numbers yet. These things are not uh, reinterpreted in terms of propositional logic or any of the existing mathematical systems. This is something more fundamental. Um, and at least you can look at it as something that Spencer Brown is inventing. And if you look at it as um, injunctive language, that is as instructions, an instruction manual, and you just read it uh, following these instructions in your mind, then you have you've followed the story and you've developed um, a primary arithmetic 
a primary algebra. And then later on, there's an, a new algebra within the algebra. And this is what allows um, uh, explicit self-referential things like the re-entry of the form into itself, um, which is a, a key concept and was very important for John Lilly, who was going in and out of the isolation tank, going in and out of his mind in the isolation tank, you know? And so for him, re-entry was about that. And as a kid reading this stuff, that's what I was really into is moving from the most primitive, you know, early parts of the book to this later stuff about the re-entry of this system into itself. And eventually the point of the work, I think, is to see that eventually um, these are the implicit operations that the universe needs, requires as the, um, the, the basic substrate. And, and it strikes me, right, that, you know, a lot of the, some of the more critical early reviews will talk about, you know, oh, this is basically, it's just a, it's, it's a different Boolean algebra. It's basically just Boolean algebra, right? That's the, the, the kind of constant refrain, right? But I think what you're pointing to is that there's something slightly different happening here, right? So if you look, think of, uh, you know, a binary system, for example, like that underlies most computer systems, um, we have the, the sort of the on state and the off state, we have the one and the zero. Um, but I think it's actually really, it's importantly different that he isn't dealing with a one and a zero, He's dealing, you know, in a certain sense with a uh, a one and then a lack of one, right? It's a it is a mark and an unmarked state, which is an unmarked state and a zero are importantly not the same thing. And I think to to recognize the uniqueness of what's happening here, you have to start with the recognition that zero and an unmarked state are not the same thing. Um, and and for me, this really opens up a question then, like. Like what is the mark, right? It's not a one, um, right? It is, it is, it is this mark of of a, of a distinction, right? Where at times it seems like it is, um, it is playing a role, kind of like a one, but at other points, it it almost feels like there's there's no distinction between the mark as a um, as a logical figure and the mark as as the like physical ink on the page. Um, and so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about. Um, what the mark is and what the mark is doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'll just give you my my perspective on it is that the real power of this text is that it's it's framing what comes out of nothing with with this ultimate framework of there's just no symbol at all. You know, it's not zero. It's just a blank page. So although we call it the unmarked state, that's just a convention. Um, at other times, Spencer Brown will call it nothing. So, so there's all these like normal understanding understanding of of what this blank state is, what nothing is, what the lack of of an appearance is. But what's nice in philosophy is that that absorbs a lot of um, the intention of apophatic discourse of negative theology, right? And and not just negative theology, but the general form that um, that general that that um, negative theology is intending which really applies in so many ways, not just in theology, you know, um, maybe even in ways that we don't ordinarily consider, you know, how the, the ordinary absence of something is something that's not so striking, but, um, you know, it, it has interesting application, but, but what is it exactly? I feel like the, the real power of this text is that the, the nothing that's being dealt with here 
is exactly dimensionless. And the first distinction from this nothing, between this nothing and something, be it a mark on the page or, you know, a chicken or uh, this this world, you know, or an idea or whatever it is, um, is also intended to be dimensionless. You know, this first distinction, the first distinction. Um, and then there's another, a third entity that we need to consider. The, the first thing that happens in the book, in fact, is um, before the definition of distinction, there's something that it's just the first words of it. I'll call it a dictum. I call it a dictum. I don't know what to call it. It's like the first words of the text. So chapter one, the form, we take as given the idea of distinction and the idea of indication and that we cannot make an indication without drawing a distinction. We take, therefore, the form of distinction for the form. And then he has the definition. Distinction is perfect continence. And then he continues, that is to say, a distinction is drawn by arranging a boundary with separate sides so that a point on one side cannot reach the other side without crossing the boundary. For example, in a plane space, a circle draws the distinction. And then he goes on. You know, I, I won't just read the whole book, but the point is that there's this, this early idea that's introduced distinction. It's an idea. And then indication, right? Synonymous with these, I think, respectively, are difference and reference. You know, and, and I've always been obsessed with the idea of self-reference, self-referentiality, be it like in a in an Escher drawing of, of like hands drawing themselves into being. You know, there, there's there's all kinds of interesting things about self-referentiality. And what what makes um, laws of form unique in the context of like Russell and stuff like that is that it takes the Russellian style of paradox, like the this statement is false sort of thing. Like, is it is it true? Is it a true statement or is it a false? How do we put it into our paradigm of things have to be either true or false if they're a proposition? You know, it's it's a self, it feeds back into itself, you know? And and it creates maybe an unending sort of process. Well, with with laws of form. Um, the way it deals with that is there's only one distinction. There's only one real difference. And in the end, there isn't a distinction. There isn't a difference. All there is is the unmarked state. But on the way there, there's all these fundamental processes. And when they're brought to light in the context of just having drawn a distinction, presumably, in a presumably unmarked state, you get these, these fundamental hypotheses that he calls axioms and canons and theorems, you know, that, that have common uh, names that, that are identified with operations that we're familiar with, like, like um, calculation, um, knowledge, intent, construction, form, you know, and and if if they're defined both in like the usual dictionary definition sort of sense that is totally natural to us, and in this tight sense connected to the act of drawing a distinction it builds this formal ontological paradigm that you can use to interpret the world you can see the world from this perspective and when you see the world from the perspective of laws of form you become enlightened as to the reality that there there is only this pure light of the unmarked state the blank page or the or the nothing of the, the the blankness and the silence, the blackness in the void of the the flotation tank, right? Because that's the kind of situation where you're immersed in the unmarked state. 
there's a sort there's a sort of uh, a, a thin line here between mysticism uh, mysticism and this sort of well worked out calculus um, that I think in and of itself mirrors the uh, the the law the the laws of form in itself uh, and and I, I sort of get a uh, a trans dual kind of um, uh, lo logic out of it, right? It's neither nor; it's both and. It, it sort of destroys these these distinctions in a sense, right? It's like a, a in some ways, it's a, the the deconstruction. I think of the distinction between you could say like the scientific and the mystical, or between the mathematical and um, the the at times almost paranormal. Uh, that these these yeah. different sort of neat categories. Um, I think it's in part, it's the primitivism here, right? That, that it is working with something that is so deep and so fundamental that these categories sort of dissolve one into the other in a really interesting way. There's this primitivism of like the archetypal um, fantasy of like a, you know, this, this, um, this pure idea of like a hypostasized first distinction, like a point, or it's like, it looks like a, a little a letter L, capital le letter L, you know, um, capital gamma or, or whatever. And at the end of the text, there was this, you know, this one sentence that just kind of like sort of ruptured my world, right? You're, so you're going through this entire, you know, functionally, it's the sort of bizarre quasi-Boolean algebra, right? And he ends with this line that I, I, I sent you uh, a week or so ago, right? We see now that the first distinction, the mark and the observer are not only interchangeable, but in form identical. Right. Right. So what we've been doing all along is we've been operating on ourselves, right? Or or not us as like a self-substance necessarily. Um, although substantiality from prote hule, from like the, the pure sense to all the different possible senses of substance in, in classical substance metaphysics can be defined in terms of how the, the unmarked state maybe that's the apiron of the Greeks, the infinite, relates to paros, the limit, the which which can also be identified with the monos, tahen, the one. There's a sort of tendency here to kind of like, um, uh, there's a tendency towards both universality and particularity, right? It's You get both at the same time. And you mentioned geometry. Uh, geometry a moment ago, and that when you read that section just a, a second ago, uh, from from the beginning of the the book, um, it, it it brought to mind um, the the geometrical method Spinoza employs, um, who can who I think is is, is uh, an interesting person to consider in the context of this conversation because at least my reading is that you can read, you can legitimately read him as an atheist or a theist, right? It's a sort of parallax um, uh, perspective that you take on there. You can also take, um, and you, there's also the question of the, I mean, he's beginning from the premise of one, he's from the, the one. I mean, he's doing that for obvious, you know, theological and political reasons, but he ends up in the many. And so I just think it's like there's there's a very interesting uh, there's interesting lines to be drawn here um, to to Spinoza that I, I don't know I'd I'd like to think about more. Yeah, for sure. You know, Spinoza has the ethics based on a fundamental. It's an opus propositionum, right? Like the Tractatus, like everything Nietzsche writes. You know, I'm I'm all for the harmonization 
of of all of this stuff and maybe that makes me a syncretist or whatever but you know or 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 you know to invoke spinoza once again a monist right because i think that ultimately you can say this is a view of the one uh shot through with difference that forms them <laughs> that, that shot through with difference or distinctions that render the many to uh, uh to us i guess yeah it could be a monism or it could be a, a demonism you know because it, it's also self-destructive you know so so like the big move from aristotelian logic which structures the the mechanistic paradigm and 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 many of the carryovers that we could be critical of about metaphysics of classical metaphysics um at the same time it, it there is it it pushes it to the point of its own self-destruction um and 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 getting past the sedimented forms that are are just the mere scaffolding and and burst us into the reality which is the real reality of our experience that that is real you know maybe produced by the the active imagination but given here before us you know as the reality that we are not only entertained by and immersed in but is real in, in every sense of the term and reconciles that with this idea of ultimate reality being something like a really weird concept of the nothing of nothingness you know something that's more like the infinite mm -hmm. the nothingness which is fullness the overwhelming overflowingness of the absolute uh, infinite this idea that it reduces to the void i think is really important here right in in this way i think that your right to be rooting um, this kind of thinking back into these sort of Neoplatonic predecessors. I think also Kabbalah could be really helpful here, right? Um, because if you if you think of somebody like Spinoza, for example, it is ultimately everything reduces back to the oneness of substance. Uh, and there's this other tradition that I think you're tapping into that wants to say, um, yes, it, it can, right? But before that, there's also still this more primordial void, right? So you can get back to the... Um, uh, the the kater or, what, or however it's pronounced right uh, on your tree of life, um, but before that is the ein sof, is the unlimited, right. is the unbounded, right? Yeah. And that this or the fool or the fool or the fool in the tarot. Yeah, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, and th th there's plenty of um, literature just straight up from Spencer Brown in his other books and in the footnotes um, of, of laws of form where he interprets this stuff in these categories, and so you can very directly start from there to um, build all these connections to the fundamental operations of laws of form. Um, he explains how what he did in laws of form should be tightly correlated to, uh, for instance, what Pseudo-Dionysus you know, has in the divine names with these five levels of eternity. Um, he tightly correlates these things. He has other um, works of, of philosophy, classical you know, theology that he correlates it to. Yeah, and and so so I follow this as well, and I find all sorts of other things where this this lights up the idea of a, a fundamental distinction, like in the Godhead, you know, and then a primitive, um, you know, three form expression, the you know Trinity, etc. So if if you know if, if somebody is is intrigued by this, right? But it's it's exceedingly complicated, you know, particularly in an audio medium. What would you suggest uh, would be the the best place for somebody to enter into this kind of work, right? What are some good resources that you might suggest to somebody who wants to explore the laws of forms? Yeah, on YouTube, I really like Leon Conrad, my my colleague in the Spencer Brown Society. Leon Conrad has this amazing series of like the first video is just 10 minutes and he goes through 
you know, the first and second chapter, basically like what I'm, what I'm trying to do for you here, what I've, what I've tried to do, he'll do in this, in this video. And then you can also see the operations, see the book, you know? So, and, and he's a, he's a professional speaker and writer and, um, you know, he does a really nice polished presentation of, of laws of form. And it's a whole series of course on laws of form. I, I will yeah. say the few, the few that I watched were very good and very helpful. And the, he speaks really slowly. He's a great educator and above all, fantastic mustache. <laughs> very much so. You know, people might also be interested in digging into uh, what you're up to now and where people can find your work. Yeah. So, um, and I, I've written about this stuff, um, for instance, um, building from my my 2019 presentation in Liverpool at the at the unmarked state, the Laws of Form 50th Anniversary Conference. Um, my essay is called um, First Philosophy and the First Distinction. That's in this big book that um, that I'm also an editor of. This just came out this year, 2023. It's called Laws of Form, a 50th anniversary. It's huge. It's a collection of, of all the essays from the conference. And um, going forward, we've developed into what we're about to announce to the world, or I think maybe this podcast will predate it by a week or whatever. Um, we're going to announce in the, the centenary of Spencer Brown's birth, 1923, um, on his birthday, April 2nd. So very soon we're having the 100th anniversary of Spencer Brown. And we're going to announce the um, official formation of our Spencer Brown Society and the fact that we have publishing nice. deals. We're going to have a, a, a journal, a lot like the Cybernetics and Human Knowing Journal, which is, you know, we're all friends. It's an excellent journal. We love it. And, and ours will be like that, you know, and um, this will be called uh, Distinction Journal of Form. And we're going to have a book series. And, um, you know, we've raised funds for Spencer Brown's gravestone. And for the, um, the the two laws that I've been describing, they're on his gravestone. We've had them engraved on there, and um, you know, and we're and we're also building funds for um, having his grave being a. Uh, they have a special term for it, like a, I don't know, a remarkable grave or historical site or something, you know, and um, and we're going to continue doing um, every other year um, this laws of form conference. I think going forward, um, Wes Denhag will also continue to to um, do our incredible world class AV work, putting these videos out there. Um, okay, and actually, I'm I'm in the process. I'll I'll um I'll plug my thing of um of putting out um putting together and putting out the uh, thinking the float tank conference, which is the 50th anniversary of the, this Esalen uh, conference, and that'll be at uh, West Enhag uh, this summer. So I'm, I'm going to have a lot of interesting phenomenologists and cyberneticians um, do this conference. And it's it's part of a larger exhibit. So I'm, I'm a curator as well as a host. And um, and this will be part of the self-reference room of the um, Gödel Escher, Bach um, exhibit that they have that, that'll be about self-reference, all of workshops at night. Anyway. That's a that's a cool little conference that's coming up as well. Thank you so much for you know guiding us through this the the sort of strange universe of laws of forms. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, and uh, this is this has been wonderful as always to to see you. 
Yeah, it's been terrific. Thank you so much. Thanks, Randy. <laughs>